Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And we're also here with Eric. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. And what we're going to do today is get you out in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then get you out to a natural spot to share with you everything that we've learned. And we do have a special guest with us today, Eric Danielson, Stewardship Coordinator with the Western New York Land Conservancy. Eric, thanks for leading the hike today. Of course. We are out here at a site called Floating Fen. Although, as you can hear from our footfalls, we are not in the fen just yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> and if you don't know what a fen is, by the end of this episode, you will be an expert because Eric is going to school us on this often misunderstood topic. <laughs> but before we get out into the muck, into the peat, right? Why don't we talk a little bit about Eric's background? We're going to talk about the Land Conservancy. And we should mention, folks, that we're going to kind of touch on these topics lightly in this episode because longtime listeners will know that we've done a few episodes with the Western New York Land Conservancy before. So we recommend checking those out. But Eric, to start us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your position and what you do with the Land Conservancy? Sure. I grew up near here in Fredonia, New York. And, you know, when I was growing up, I was really into all kinds of nature stuff. I wanted to be an entomologist, had a big bug collection, and kind of drifted away from that as I went through high school, spent a bunch of time after school uh, working in like food service, uh, farming, some forestry stuff. And when I was doing some of this, this work, like internships on organic farms, I got to realizing that I was a lot more interested in the weeds in between the rows of veggies <laughs> and like the weird plants that were growing in the swamps out back than I really was in farming, per se. And so then after a while, I moved to New York City and had a job with the New York City Compost Project. And living in the city was kind of stressful for me. So I spent a lot of time getting into the parks and not even just the parks, but kind of just the out of the way natural areas that are left, especially on Staten Island and got really into the botany of it met some people there who were really really sharp botanists and really mentored me a lot and kind of came back and developed a relationship with a couple of botanists John Titus at SUNY Fredonia and Priscilla Titus who was at the Western New York Land Conservancy at that time and eventually sort of ended up working in plant survey plant ecology as a consultant and eventually came on to a role with the Western New York Land Conservancy. So obviously I'm leaving out a lot of detail, but I really like this work and I'm really glad to be part of this team and this organization. Can you give the, the audience maybe a one or two sentence idea? I know this is a challenge, but <laughs> what does the Western New York Land Conservancy do? Sure. We own or otherwise protect land for the purpose of conservation of natural resources, as opposed to say, uh, recreation or uh, profit. And we do that, again, by either owning land as preserves or through conservation easements, which we talked about at length in the previous episode. Yes, which and conservation easements are such an interesting and useful tool mm -hmm. for protecting, conserving land that you want to make sure it has protection, but it's land that private citizens can still continue to own, correct? Right, and so about half well, more than half at this point of what we protect under conservation easements is actually farmland, 
We want to make sure that remains available for agriculture as opposed to being developed and having those soils lost. And then the other half, or less than half now, because our farmland specialist is just doing so much work and the acreages are large, the other half is, you know, natural lands. Right. Here in Western New York, we do have a lot of farmland. We do. And it's nice to know that that land that's under your protection won't be turned into subdivisions or Paula's Donuts in the future. <laughs> exactly. Nothing against Paula's, Paula's Donuts, Donuts is not bad, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel like Paula's Donuts probably takes up a lot less space than, say, an industrial park sure. or a big housing development. Is Paula's Donuts national or is that just a local? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I assumed it was local. But... I don't know that I've been to one. <laughs> Me either. Mm-hmm. So, folks, I do want to encourage you to look into land conservancies in your area that may be called a land trust. These organizations, as I mentioned in previous episodes, are doing vital, beautiful conservation work at a local level in so many areas across the country. They have literally helped conserve millions of acres. So definitely look into land trusts in general, land trusts or land conservancies in your area. They're just doing incredible work, like the Western New York Land Conservancy is doing here. But, yeah, and, and the last episode with Eric was, did we say it was the chestnut episode? Right, when yeah. we talked about the College Lodge. Mm-hmm. And I would like no, to put... that was the Allegheny Wildlands. Oh, I'm sorry, that's right. <laughs> Previously, you talked to JT <laughs> about a... the College Lodge, who would probably even tell you still more about the Land Conservancy. And I would like to yeah. point out that the all the episodes that the Western New York Land Conservancy has involved us in, those lands that we talked about have gone on to be successfully preserved. Mm-hmm. Have so, you guys thanked us yet? Or? Are we the <laughs> are we the vital link there? I'm yeah. pretty sure you are. I mean, I don't think we own any other properties. So. <laughs> but, but that is the big reason that we're here. You invited us to take a hike because this property that we're at, mm-hmm. the Land Conservancy is trying to protect this property. We are. Yeah. So yeah, I should probably say a little bit about you know where it is that we are, where we're standing right now, right. and kind of the mm-hmm. context of that. So this is a roughly 220-acre property that is kitty-corner to the College Lodge, kind of right across the street, almost touching. So obviously when we're conserving land, connectivity and having more habitat conserved kind of in the same area is central to that strategy. So this particular property was part of a really large set of properties that basically butts up against the west side of Bear Lake which is a glacial kettle lake in northern Chautauqua County. And all these properties were owned for a long period of time by a timber products company, Eagle Timber Products. And then maybe six or seven years ago, they got parceled up and sold off. And initially the village of Brockton, which is downstream, bought almost all of them because they have sort of a backup water supply intake in these wetlands on the west side of Bear Lake. So they've retained one of those large properties that has that intake um, as like a watershed protection land. But in the time since, they've sold the others, including this one, to various private buyers. When it was owned by the village of Brockton, I made a visit to this property because I thought it looked interesting on the aerial imagery. And I found this wetland that turned out to be a, you know, floating sphagnum peat fen. So that's been on my radar since back then. And at that time, the Western New York Land Conservancy was working on the College Lodge. So I kind of let Marisa, our conservation director, know about this interesting property right next to the College Lodge, though I wasn't working for the Land Conservancy at the time. Hmm. 
So as the years have gone on and I've assumed a role there and we successfully protected the College Lodge and we've been doing conservation uh, strategizing elsewhere, we've kind of kept our eye on this one and it came up on the market once and then got bought really fast oh. and uh, so we missed it that time. And so when it came up this time, we were able to kind of jump on that and really quick work something out with the landowner who's giving us to the end of this year to raise the funds and close on the property. Hmm. Now that is a slightly tighter timeline than we normally have. Like with the College Lodge, you know, we had quite a bit of flexibility to work with. With the Allegheny Wildlands, we had a deadline, but a landowner who was pretty flexible on that too. Here, it's a little bit tighter. We really need to make sure that everything is all set to go by that deadline. And so we're, you know, about halfway through the year and we're maybe about a third of the way through the fundraising. It's looking good, but like with all of these campaigns, it's never a certainty until we've got it pretty much there. So why don't we tell people before we forget, mm -hmm. if they're interested in helping support the effort mm -hmm. to preserve this property, what should they do? Sure. So if you're interested in contributing to the fundraising campaign for this property, the best way to do that is to go to our website, wnylc.org. That's for Western New York Land Conservancy. And there is a donate page and a projects page, and you can look through those and find all the information on how to contribute to this project. Awesome. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And for listeners who might not live in the area, I just wanted to point out that the places you're talking about, Fredonia, Brockton, where we are right now, we are in southwestern New York. So if you kind of just picture New York State, kind of that flashlight image, we're kind of in the lower left corner, right? Yep. How far are we from the PA border? Do you have any idea? From the PA border, if you're going west along Lake Erie, about 25 minutes. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can help right now. So if someone has the podcast playing over a speaker or something, Alexa, <laughs> donate to Western New York Land Conservancy. Nice. <laughs> hey, Google. <laughs> I like we that. lose everything. <laughs> All right. And uh, Eric, give people the, an idea, like just the woods around us right now. We like to give people kind of a, a picture in their heads of I will what say, like. we, we have to mention, it's I so rarely see moose wood yeah. that typically it's like a, like maybe higher elevations or poorer soils, I guess. And some um, people know it as striped maple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just one that I always like seeing because, you know, you'll see them in like Allegheny and up in the Adirondacks. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I don't, I don't see them a ton. At least not where we hike all yeah. that often. So, but why don't we let Eric talk? Yeah, because I asked him. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, as far as that species, that's probably more of a, a slightly regional difference. Like as you get up more into like the Buffalo region and a little bit of like more northern Erie County and sort of like the Lake Ontario plain, the soils are different, and so you're going to see less of that. <laughs> where we are right now, we're not in a wetland right now. We're on a dry upland. This property is on a. It's a type of moraine formation called a came field. So here he is going off about glaciers again, but, <laughs> you know, at the leading edge of where the glaciers were receding, they leave large amounts of material. Those are called moraines. And when you have a bunch of like pits and channels on the glacier surface that accumulate material that's melted off and they conglomerate into these mounds on top of the glacier and then the glacier melts away, they sort of just drop there. And so what's particular about Cames that's relevant here is that some of that material that's in there usually involves calcium-rich cementing materials. Yeah. Hmm. So you've got- Mineral rich. 
Yeah, so even though you've got what are technically kind of acidic soils, kind of acidic materials overall, you get these deposits of this calcium-rich material, and the landscape that's left behind by this came formation process, it's got mounds and it's got hollows. And the College Lodge is very much like this as well. It's filled with mounds and hollows, and the hollows tend to form wetlands because you get all the groundwater soaking into the ground surface, filtering down through the material of the came mounds and then coming out into these hollows. And when it goes through those calcium-rich cementing layers, it kind of carries some of that calcium out into the water. So you get this groundwater that's enriched with minerals that wasn't in the rain, that fell on the ground. And that's going to be important to some of the different types of wetlands we're going to talk about. So yeah, this is right on this came moraine formation, the same one that's under the College Lodge and it extends quite a bit further to the northeast and southwest along the uh, Portage Escarpment, which kind of marks the transition from the Lake Erie Plain to the Allegheny Plateau. And so in addition to, you know, these general hollows, there are a couple of larger depressions called kettles that were formed where like big chunks of ice were left behind and sat for a while. And so because they were sitting there melting slowly, while the rest of the glacier had sort of receded and was now like depositing all these gravels and other loose materials, those filled in around these chunks of ice. And then when those chunks of ice melted away, it left a, a deeper hole, a deeper depression. And so Bear Lake is a really large example of that. Cassadega Lake's a little further to the east are as well. But the fen that we're going to, the floating fen, is a wetland that developed in a much smaller kettle. And that is going to be right over to our right, okay. off the trail. And the woods we're, we're standing in right now, this seems a fairly young woods, am I wrong? Or? No, you are absolutely right. Like I said, this was owned by a timber products company right. for many decades. <laughs> and so, you know, they did their timber management and then they <laughs> sold it to private buyers who did some more logging. And then successive buyers did some more logging. So it's had a lot of logging done in a short period of time. Okay. But fortunately, sometimes that can have some pretty nasty effects in terms of the, you know, the quality of the remaining vegetation. But in this case, there's very few invasive species in here. Most of them are limited to right along the logging roads. Mm -hmm. We've got a nice diverse residual canopy of moderately mature sugar maple, beech, cucumber magnolia, hemlock, and this profusion of moosewood or striped maple, as you note, <laughs> is actually a pretty typical thing in this area post-logging. You know, they kind of hang out in the understory, but they will really recruit heavily after a logging event. So, yeah, lots of I think really we're, happy looking striped maple here. I think we're also looking at succession happening mm -hmm. in real time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah there, there's some uh, evergreen that like I can see the bottom of it in the understory. But when I look up, I only see hardwoods, yeah. <laughs> which does happen. But uh, it's always fun to see. Yeah. So. Now, have you guys ever done an episode on succession and forests? No, we not haven't. really. We've yeah. only like mentioned Touched it. On it. Yeah. OK, well, because when it comes to peatlands, including fens and bogs, much like upland forests, there's a theory of succession where it, in a forest it starts as like a field and then you get your light demanding species that grow quickly, your pioneer species, and then those are followed up by your more shade tolerant species, and then eventually your climax very shade tolerant species that then sort of form a steady state in theory. Theory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's successional theory in forests and doesn't always work out that way, but 
at least it seems to be reasonably consistent with what we can observe. Whereas in wetlands, in peatlands in particular, there are also theories of succession, but the on the ground, what we find <laughs> is considerably messier to the point where, you know, no one's really sure whether these theories have hold water. Guys, let's just say it's just a theory, all right? So, <laughs> well, just like you... evolution and you know. gravity. No, no, no. <laughs> just a hypothesis that explains maybe a third of what we see. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't you say too, though? Because mm-hmm. in my research for this episode, just even defining wetlands themselves sure. is messy. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a way of putting it mildly. I think it has something to do with the strategy too, right? There's like methods using satellite imagery with GIS or something, but then there's also the on-the-ground plant identification where that can be pretty telling whether or not you're in a wetland or not. Mm-hmm. You know, that's delineation, mm. but I mean definition in the first place. Oh, whole, I see. Right? You know, I see. You know, you can Google like, is the ocean a wetland? <laughs> and you're not going to get entirely consistent answers. I mean, for most is of the our ocean? It sounds like, is the ocean land? That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I would say, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's probably most useful that we go with schemes that say that if you get to a water constant water depth of more than about six feet, you're now in an aquatic environment mm. as opposed to a wetland. But then you have seasonal changes. What qualifies as free? <laughs> Does it have to be 12 feet tall? Does it have to be 15 right, right. feet tall? Three right, meters? Yeah, yeah. Two meters? When does it become a shrub, right? Yeah, where do yeah, we draw yeah, the yeah. line? <laughs> All right, so we'll talk a little bit more about that, but why don't we go to get our feet wet? Yes, yeah. sure. All or right. ho- hopefully not, as it, <laughs> yeah. no, at least can. for us. We have our gum leaf boots. That would mean there's a hole in one of our boots, and hopefully <laughs> that's not the case. We have just walked across a fallen log, and we've gone from dry forest to ground surface that is completely covered in sphagnum moss. And if you're not familiar with sphagnum moss, aside from in like potting soil, it's this funky moss that forms little cushion heads and then it's got a long stringy stem that goes down below it. Yeah, you pulled it out so easily. I was actually kind of surprised how, because I usually think of it as like a dense mat that I can't just like <laughs> pull out like it's the fluffiest surface ever. You know? Yeah, well that but. depends very much on like what species of sphagnum you're working with. Hmm. So here we're kind of in the edge of this fen mat and we'll define that in a second, but over here it's thinner and it grows sphagnum species that are more tolerant of more nutrient enrichment in the water. Hmm. Whereas your really, really dense sphagnum species, a lot of those are the high acidity ones of a more developed bog. So this is probably, I haven't worked with identifying sphagnum in a couple of years, so I'm going to hold you to it. It's go okay. easy on the names, <laughs> but this is, this is a very common one that you find in shaded to more open uh, wetlands that are a little more mineral rich. Sometimes it's in mats, sometimes it's just kind of in hummocks and it's forming the edge of this mat here. But you can see that around the edge, there's a lot more of these grassy plants. There's sedges, rushes, uh, rice cut grass and quite a whoop, there. Steve yeah. just stepped off the log. <laughs> I wouldn't step off the log too much in this section because like there I said go. it's thinner here. Yeah. And also lots and lots of burreed, which is a really funky grass-like plant that makes weird spiky flowers. Just like button bush, people might say they look like a coronavirus <laughs> illustration. Uh-huh. But behind you are kind of the most charismatic of our, you know, yes. happy grassy plants. 
Steve. <laughs> I'm going to keep falling off of it when I turn to look at something. Yeah. Just yeah. keep the mic up above. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you go under. <laughs> Just the, only the mic sticking out. Yeah. <laughs> we got some irises, right? Yeah. yeah. Some so blue flag. Big, yeah. This is the big spectacle of this particular fen is that there are huge colonies of blue flag iris distributed throughout the peat mat. So, uh, folks, we have about, what would you say, about 18 inches high to two feet high. Yeah. Uh, we have dozens of deep purple irises in, in flower. Every, every time Bill gives, a, like, a, an estimate of something's, like, height, I'm going to be like, Bill, that's only six inches, buddy. <laughs> like, you really overestimate. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, well, yeah, we want to talk I wouldn't about say something he's that really is small. <laughs> um, down here. Oh, yeah. Growing in the little sphagnum mounds, uh, uh, we've got these tiny little plants that each have perfectly round leaf on a long stem. Oh, oh, I know what it is. <laughs> I bet you do. And Just each of these leaves, <laughs> gotcha. Each of these leaves is covered with these long red hairs, and at the tip of each red hair is this little glistening drop of sap, and that drop of sap is sticky. And what they're for is that any kind of bug that's small enough that bumps into those gets stuck. And then bit by bit, that leaf curls over and envelops that bug. And the sap that's on there contains enzymes that kind of digest and break down that bug. And it's able to absorb some of the nitrogen and phosphorus from that insect. Because this is a carnivorous plant that likes to live right on the sphagnum where it's very nutrient poor. And that carnivory helps to kind of supplement the nutrients that they need. So what would you say it is, Bill? Round-leaved sundew? That's what we've got. <laughs> yep. So Drosera. Is... I think drosis means dew, so it's, it kind of refers to that dewy ball of sticky substance that catches its prey with. So that's mm -hmm. the genus you're talking about. Yeah, drosera. Yeah. Yep, drosera rotundifolia. Nice. And this is by far the most common and abundant of our different sundews. Some of them are pretty rare, some are endangered, especially in places like near New York City where, say, people go out into the Pine Barrens of New Jersey and they'll poach them, dig them up, pot them up, and like sell them as little house plants. Um, fortunately, this species is, I'd say it's bog standard. <laughs> it's quite abundant. You can find it in most sphagnus wetlands in parts of Chautauqua County, as well as other parts of western New York. So we're not so worried about this one. Now, can we pause here for a minute? Because... Trying to keep in mind the listeners out there that may not have um, your vast experience with, with wetlands or even our minimal experience with wetlands. But I wanted to get into the episode just some kind of rough definitions. Mm -hmm. Because, as we mentioned, that they can be a little messy. Mm -hmm. And in our emails back and forth kind of prepping for the episode, one of the things that you mentioned is that definitions of a habitat like a fen... Mm -hmm. There can be a lot of misconceptions out there. Oh, didn't you even say there was like a meme that's been going around that got it wrong? Yeah. Well, when I say like going around, right. it really partially depends right. on the circles that uh, you're in. I well, guess. that's the funny thing is usually, yeah, I follow a bunch of like ecological and botanical meme pages. Right. But my general population friends were sharing this. One oh, around, okay. Which I mean, made yeah. sense to me because, you know, like I have friends who recently, well, several years ago now, bought a property that has a big wetland in back. And they wanted me to come out, look at the plants, and tell them what was going on. And so, you know, they, in various conversations leading up to this, referred to it as their marsh, as their bog, ah. as their swamp. Yeah. And so, you know, you get in there, and <laughs> it's got a tree canopy. So that's one of your things that stands out. If it's got a tree canopy, it's some or another type of swamp. Whereas a marsh, 
for example, is going to be a completely open, kind of grassy, sunny wetland. All right, all right. So the first thing I have in my notes here, mm -hmm. I looked up and I tried to find general definitions of wetlands. So the mm -hmm. this EPA site I found, tell me if you agree with this. They said there's four general types of wetlands found in the U.S. And they said marshes, swamps, bogs, and fens. That's general. General speaking. Mm -hmm. So then, just as you said, they said swamps are generally dominated by trees and shrubs. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was taught. Yeah, that's yeah. What's, standing, living, yeah. you know. And that they're very wet soils during the growing season, and there may be standing water at other times in a swamp. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Generally. <laughs> generally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that they, they can be divided. Swamps can be divided up into forested swamp, shrub swamp, or mangrove swamp here in the U.S., makes sense to me and again these are very general and the <laughs> this pamphlet which i'll put a link to uh -huh. i felt it was a very good introduction mm -hmm. and it kind of went out of its way to say look we're dealing with delineations here that can be messy these are very mm -hmm. general so then we move to marshes which are periodically saturated or flooded but they're characterized by herbaceous plants mm -hmm. those non-woody plants and those can be divided into tidal or non-tidal marshes and then you have a lot of different definitions in there wet meadows prairie potholes but generally when i think of a marsh i would think of like the everglades that's one of the most well known and then we get into bogs and fens and that's one thing i wanted to make sure we talk about is differentiating oh. between a bog and a you, fen. but you saying the everglades like the image that i have of the everglades <laughs> is like cypress domes and stuff like that well yes because right. there are yeah. different habitats within the Everglades. right 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 but i feel like when most people they think of the river of grass. Exactly. Sure, sure. I was just going to say. Like where you, where you walk on the boardwalk and see all the crocodiles. Alligators. Alligators. <laughs> looking back at you. Yeah, the, the freshwater ones. Yeah. Right. So I want to hear what you think of these definitions, all right? Mm -hmm. Bogs, the EPA says, freshwater wetlands characterized by spongy peat deposits, evergreen trees and shrubs, and a thick carpet of sphagnum moss. The only water source is typically rainwater. What do you think about that? Yeah, so that's kind of, that's reasonable and i think that you know where we get into the real nitty-gritty is asking why the only water source is rainwater okay and then they said fens are ground water fed peat forming wetlands covered by grasses sedges reeds and wildflowers willow and birch are also common and then i found kind of combined some other definitions and i tried to form one that i felt would meet your approval okay so i'm curious here a fen is a type of peat accumulating wetland fed by mineral-rich groundwater or surface water. The unique water chemistry of fens is a result of that ground or surface water input. And typically, the input results in higher mineral concentrations and a more basic pH than found in bogs. So <laughs> Kind of bouncing back and forth like, yeah. Here we got the issue of, so where they put it on this meme, yeah. this meme had four quadrants, one for swamp, one for marsh, straightforward. Kind of what we're doing here, right? One for bog and one for fen. Mm -hmm. And they kind of simplified it to that last point there, which was the fen having an alkaline or basic pH and the bog having a acidic, acidic pH. Yeah. The problem is that you have a whole lot of fens that are acidic. But how acidic? Not quite as acidic as a bog can get, but there's yeah. a substantial overlap. Okay. So we're talking about, here's here's a fun part. You know, everyone who, you know, remembers their chemistry will understand that a pH of seven is neutral. So mm -hmm. out in nature, things get a little different. Because right. if you had a glass of hypothetical water, and I'm calling it hypothetical water, <laughs> because this is water that is only water, has nothing else that it's ever been exposed to. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's a little hard to get. Even your distilled water is not that. So this hypothetical water that's just pure H2O, 
has a pH of 7. But water that exists in the world with an atmosphere absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So depending on the temperature and some other factors, it'll absorb a certain amount of carbon dioxide. And so typically surface water and or rain that don't have anything else dissolved in them have a pH of around 5.6 to 5.8. Ah, right, slightly acidic. Right, so that's what we would consider functional neutral in a wetland. Ah, um, I like that term, functional neutral. Yeah, <laughs> which is to be separated from saying that a wetland is circumneutral, which does mean its pH is closer to seven. But where we're going with that is that if you test the water chemistry in a wetland and you get like a 5.8 or a six, what's going on is that's telling you that that water is buffered by alkaline ions generally calcium carbonate. So if you're testing the water and you get like a six in a wetland and you say, oh, that's lower than seven, so this is acidic, so this is a bog, you're gonna be misled. If you've got a six, that's actually fairly well buffered with calcium carbonate. So it's all about the relative pH. So it's right. like the starting point isn't seven, the starting point is in the fives, like mid mid fives. But so if you're getting higher than that, it's been it's more alkaline. It's still acidic, but it's more alkaline than it was well, yeah. uh, to begin with. Because you could say a pH of four is more alkaline than a <laughs> pH of two. Right. <laughs> you certainly can. Yeah. Um, but that, that's, that's less meaningful like, than this. Like a thousand uh, times more alkaline <laughs> because it's a logarithmic scale. Okay. But yeah, so with fens, many fens are buffered by calcium carbonate. And so they have a pH higher than that roughly 5.6. But also many fens have a lower pH because either they have just very mineral poor groundwater inputs that don't do a lot of buffering of that pH, but those tend to you know, have a lot of sphagnum like this one right here. And sphagnum is favored by acidic environments, and so it creates acidity of its own to kind of improve the environment for itself. So you have a wetland like this one that's fed by groundwater. You know, it's got this connection to water that's seeping through the ground not a whole lot of buffering mineral content but lots of dissolved nutrients in general and that sphagnum is acidifying it such that the water out here it's a ph you know somewhere maybe 4.5 to 5. Is it right where we're standing right here this is more bog like right well no it's a fun oh it is mm -hmm. okay but it's an acidic fun so this would be a poor fen right so okay. the formal term for that, we consider acidic fens to be poor, as in they're nutrient poor or carbonate poor. Hmm. And so they have this lower pH. And then uh, rich fens that have a lot of calcium carbonate, those are your high pH fens. But when you say high pH, what could that be up to? Um, up to about 8. Okay. So but usually between like 6.8 and 8 are okay. your rich fens. Hmm. And then you have a lot of intermediate fens, which are kind of usually between like the upper fours or lower fives and the upper sixes. Okay, and that, just to, to say again for the audience, that poor and that rich, mm -hmm. it's referring to the mineral availability, right? Especially calcium carbonate okay. content. Yeah. Right. And would you say that in a, a rich fen, you would have more diversity in terms of wildlife too? That really depends. In particular, some of the richest fens are marl fens where the pH can be very high and if you have an example of that that's been very intact for a very long period of time, like some of the marl beds at Virgin Swamp here in Western New York, very high diversity of all kinds of interesting plants, including a number of super rarities. But if you have alkaline seepage from say like an old quarry site, 
Um, it may have much lower diversity than the surroundings because those specialized conditions uh, restrict the you know number of different species that can live there. Okay. And you know, likewise with these acid bogs or poor fens, if they're relatively young or just are so isolated from other areas where there are specialized flora and fauna that use those habitats, they're gonna have a lower diversity. But in areas like the boreal regions where there are huge blankets of bog, they can be quite diverse due to the, the number of different specialized organisms that have adapted to those habitats. Okay. One of the points I kept coming across when I was doing research is some sites, and this seemed like a questionable call to me, but some sources said that sphagnum is going to dominate more in a bog, not as much in a fen. Would you agree with that or no? In a way, yeah, because, you know, if we look at this over a time scale, as opposed to just looking at a single moment in time, sphagnum is why the bog becomes a bog. I was about to ask about that, because when you were saying that, like, it helps, like, acidify... Well, first of all, I know that it accumulates each year, and it's making the soils around it more acidic, or the, the water more acidic. It almost sounds a little bit like an ecosystem engineer, in a sense. Yeah, and that's that's key to, you know, what I was mentioning with theories of ecological succession in peatlands. Mm-hmm. So your sort of classic theoretical bog succession sequence is you start out with either, like, a kettle wetland that's nutrient poor so it's oligotrophic it doesn't have a lot of nutrients in the water from the groundwater or say a piece of ground that you know is also not super nutrient rich and receives a lot of precipitation and a lot not a lot of evaporation so you get that more in like more northern climates like Nova Scotia the British Isles the boreal zones and so what happens with that is you get this uh, sphagnum growing and it will form a mat, whether that's a mat kind of around the edge of this pond or just on that wet ground, it forms a mat. And the sphagnum, sphagnum can actually grow really fast when it's got the right conditions, which is that it stays moist and doesn't get too hot. And so the sphagnum grows and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And in this terrestrial example where it's on the ground, it just sort of forms this blanket. And in the, the kettle pond example, um, it gradually fills in that body of water. And so once it's filled in that body of water, we're formed this blanket where it's at least several feet thick above the soil level. The peat, it soaks up a lot of water, but it's not very permeable. Water doesn't move through a uh, compressed deep peat. So the sphagnum that's on the surface of that, it's now kind of sealed off from the water table of say that kettle depression or the, the wet ground that it started on. And so now the sphagnum that's on the surface is only receiving moisture from rain. Hmm. And so that's where we get into that USDA definition you had where it receives all of its moisture from rain. And so because it's only receiving moisture from rain, it's much, much more nutrient poor and mineral poor than say you know, acidic poor fen. Because that acidic poor fen, even though it's sphagnum dominated and even though it's acidic, it's still receiving a lot more of these mineral nutrients from that groundwater. Hmm. All right. And some of what I was reading said that ba or fens will sometimes lead into or become bogs. Mm-hmm. Right. So this sequence I just described, that period of time in which the sphagnum was like filling in yeah. that body of water, that whole time it was a poor fen. It wasn't a bog yet. 
and it wasn't until that became sealed off from the other moisture sources that it became a bog. Okay. And hmm. would you agree that all of both of these designations, fen and bog, and kind of all the nuanced levels in between, mm-hmm. kind of one of the, the dominant factors that they share is peat. Yes. They are peat-forming wetlands. Mm-hmm. And then, so let's talk a little bit about peat. Sure. So for, I'm sure people have heard of peat moss. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they've probably <laughs> bought it in stores yeah. like I have too. But can we give a, people just kind of a quick introduction to peat? What is that all about? Yeah, so peat, it's not strictly a sphagnum moss thing. Peat is basically just a type of organic soil that forms when your accumulation of dead organic matter from these plants as they grow and die is faster than their decomposition into like a more fully decomposed muck or soil. And that's happening because these areas are somewhat acidic. They're waterlogged, so anaerobic conditions. Yeah. So it's Oxygen really is the, lacking. The anaerobic nature of that, because of course you do get peat accumulation in these alkaline fens. Right, well. right, right. So the acidity definitely enhances that in bogs, but um, it's really, yeah, that... Lack of oxygen. Yeah, the anaerobic conditions. Is preventing bacteria and other things from being able to do their job to mm-hmm. break stuff down. And that's why I'm sure people have heard of something falling into a bog and being relatively <laughs> yeah. intact thousands of years later mm-hmm. because it hasn't been decomposed. Right. And that can happen in a fen as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably. So in fens that are more alkaline, they're going to be less sphagnum dominant. Typically, the majority of the peat material in there comes from grasses, sedges, rushes, and their root systems. And then you do have where these definitions all kind of get fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Um, we have peat swamps. And so these are peatlands where they've got a peaty layer over usually some kind of a muck soil deposit that's deep enough to still, the peat is still deep enough to qualify them as a peatland, but they do have a tree canopy, tree or shrub canopy. And so oftentimes that becomes sort of a mixed moss, sedge, and woody peat. And why why are peatlands so important? I came across this a lot in my... Right. Research. Industry, so, man. You got to sell it. You got to make money. You got to uh, Have you ever seen well, the pictures yes. of of how they like remove the peat? Oh yeah. It's wild like how deep it is and how they just scoop it out. Oh, yeah. it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so clearly the reason peat is important is scotch. Uh, but, <laughs> Wait, uh, what's the connection? I I actually don't know it. So, peat when you harvest it from especially these like very deep kind of bog blanket deposits that mm-hmm. you find in more northern latitudes, you can dry it out. Mm-hmm. You can basically cut it into big slices, like brownies, dry it out in the sun. <laughs> right, right. And then it's this Peat bunch brownies. of dry, compressed organic matter, and that can burn. So, you know, in places like the northern British Isles, where traditionally they went through long periods of time with very few trees, thanks to all the sheep, <laughs> if you had to heat your home, yeah. you'd burn the peat. Do with peat. You right, might right. even build your home out of slabs of peat. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So... They would burn the peat to heat the wort in the brewing process as they made the first stages of the... Well, Bill, the Bill when, on the way up here, Bill was saying that it is used as a type of fuel. So I guess that makes mm-hmm. sense that, uh, that they would use it to... Uh... I thought you were going to flavor the scotch. <laughs> well, it does. The smoke oh, that makes settles sense. on the, the boiling wort, and that hmm. incorporates the smoky flavor into the scotch. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. But the thing that, that came up a lot with me was the carbon yes. storage capacity. That's the real important thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So because all this organic matter is accumulating and not decomposing quickly... It is a huge carbon sink. Some estimates I've seen say that like the world's boreal peatlands, which do stretch around the northern latitudes, have twice as much 
carbon stored as all the world's forests. Right, yeah, I came across that too. And that yeah. they, they store anywhere from a quarter to a third of the global soil carbon is in these peatlands. Mm -hmm. The one thing I found is the, the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, they mm -hmm. described peatlands as Cinderella habitat, mm -hmm. meaning it's been overlooked and undervalued. <laughs> I think that everyone should more look and more value all <laughs> yeah, so yeah I'm on board and yeah. you, you know you mentioned the northern peatlands I didn't realize how big that area was in northern North America northern Asia and Europe mm -hmm. but that there are peatlands in many other parts of the world when mm -hmm. specific conditions exist like even in Africa yes there are peatlands. huge peatlands in like West Africa and mm -hmm. the rainforest regions right but the the northern peatlands because yeah. it's most common in middle and higher latitudes right yeah yeah and yeah. when you get into like these tropical peatlands they don't look anything like what we think of as peatlands <laughs> these are essentially very wet forests that accumulate these deep, deep layers of undecomposed organic matter because of the continuous precipitation oh, um, that, okay. you know, creates these very waterlogged soils. And so you're not necessarily going to walk in there and see something that looks like what you'd think of as a northern peat bog. Right. <laughs> so let's get out a little bit more on this particular peat mat and talk about this one specifically and why it is the way that it is. If any of your listeners have ever been to like a nature preserve that is a bog or is described as a bog, say like Moss Lake Preserve in Western New York is often described as a bog. It's technically a poor fen for the reasons we've just been talking about, but you know, same difference colloquially. Oftentimes you'll <laughs> Wait be... Wait a second, do you say Moss Lake yes. is called a bog? but it's a fan. <laughs> right. If you read descriptions of it, they'll say, you know, it has a sphagnum bog. Right, right. But the sphagnum bog is a poor fen right, right, in this right. case. But it's called Moss Lake. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I like the, the trifecta going on. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's actually a really important point is that when, you know, I was first talking to our communications department about how to talk about this habitat, they would keep saying that there's this mat of sphagnum moss floating in the fen. And that's not quite right because the body of water that it's floating in is not the fen. Just like at Moss Lake, that sphagnum mat is the fen and it's floating in a lake. Gotcha. The, the sphagnum mat itself is the fen. Right. So, it's almost like saying, there's a second floor on top of my house. Like it is the house, right? Like, right, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, this, this mat that we're standing on right now, Hang you on. know. That was a good analogy, Steve. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I pull one out of my ass every now and then. <laughs> well, so this is, this is a really thick section of the peat mat. And yeah, we're standing so, on it. Yep, we're standing on it. It's firm, but. But you it's know, cushiony. It definitely feels like we're walking on a mattress. Yep, but if you get out a little further, you get into spots where it feels like you are walking on a waterbed that has <laughs> not been safety tested. <laughs> and so, yeah, if you're at a nature preserve that has like a bog, oftentimes they'll have, say, a boardwalk go across it because having foot traffic on these fen mats on a regular basis is not very good for it. So here, when this is a nature preserve, there are some spots where from the trail, you can get a great view out on it, but we're not gonna have a specific spot where you can get out on it, especially because there's really just this one area where it's kind of thick enough that almost nobody is gonna put their foot or whole body through, mm -hmm. whereas the vast majority of it is thinner. 
and people will fall through. Um, I also want to mention that you're, you weren't kidding about the blue flag iris. Like, yeah, we can we can walk a little further over there, and you can get yeah. the full view. Yeah, where we were standing before, there was a lot of it, right? But now we're walking towards this opening where it's like a, a it's like it. a never ending <laughs> like patch of it. It's like as far as you can see it, it's still there. There's like eight tenths of an acre. <laughs> wow. So not never ending, but big. <laughs> no, it's never ending. I can tell. Very big. Yeah, and you can feel it's a little thinner there, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can see it's a different color sphagnum. So we have some reds mixed in with the greens here. Mm-hmm. Still, we got the, the sundews. This is even lighter green, right? Well, yeah, I want to point out this kind of brown one. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't seem like it, the last one you pulled out. It was it looked like the root system was much longer, unless the roots broke off of this one. And these leaves look thicker, shorter maybe? I don't know. Yeah, they're looks different. different. Yeah. And I want to point out, these aren't roots. It's just the stem keeps going. And if you were to manage to look at one of these without actually breaking it, in theory, that stem could go down for a very, very long distance <laughs> to like the bottom of the peat mat. So feet. The feet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but for only the first few inches is living. Yeah. The rest is dead. And that's what's accumulating as peat. Any idea how deep the peat bed is? Where we're standing, I'd, I'd expect it's at least a few feet deep. Okay. But again, there are spots where you can just kind of put your foot through, and some sure. of those are probably considerably thinner. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but still definitely thick enough to have this be a very sphagnum-dominant fen that is on the acidic side, so classified as a poor fen. But in spite of that, because it's not a proper bog, you can see plants, including um, you know the cinnamon fern, sometimes your skunk cabbage, and some mm -hmm. others that they're kind of intolerant of truly acidic conditions, but because they're able to put their roots down deep enough to access the water table underneath, oh, okay. they're able to tolerate living here. Huh. Whereas all these sundews that you're seeing down around your feet, very shallow rooted plants that only put their roots in the top layer of this sphagnum um, have to be very tolerant of acidic conditions. And as you mentioned before, habitats like this can have very specialized plants and animals living within them. Mm -hmm. Like, I was looking here in New York State, I came across a dragonfly with a great name, the Ebony Bog Haunter. Mm. <laughs> Have you ever seen it? It's critically imperiled in New York State? Not to my knowledge. So I'm it's... not an Odonata guy, but... Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's relatively small. It's only about three to four centimeters long. Its body's brown to black, bright green eyes on the males, and then has several white rings at the base of the abdomen. Mm. So it was, it was talking about some fens and bogs in central New York. And it was saying that the species itself is not considered imperiled, mm -hmm. but because the populations are so habitat specific mm -hmm. and they're so relatively small, it's rare to see it. So it is considered critically imperiled in our state. Gotcha. The bog hunter elephant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got to do more survey to see about specialized flora and fauna here, this particular fen. We do know that in the 19th century, quite a while ago, this particular peatland was known to local naturalists and botanists, and it was recorded in the 1877 flora of Chautauqua County oh, wow. by Edward Burgess, who referred to it as Randall's fly. My terminology is sort of bad. Is fly like an old-timey term for this type of wetland, or is it something we still use and I just I don't know any better? I, I was like, what? Because <laughs> there's Randall's fly, Alden's fly, <laughs> a couple other flies mentioned in this. And it turns out, yes, so a uh, fly comes from like a Dutch term that would have covered both fens and marshes. It's kind of like an open grassy wetland. 
and so kind of peatlands in general were often referred to as such and such fly. In the Dutch it's Vly, V-L-Y, okay. but uh, you know, anglicized as F-L-Y. And in eastern New York, southeastern New York in particular, where you do find a lot more of these Dutch-derived names still, there are quite a number of peatlands in state forests and whatnot that have such and such fly, such and such fly hmm. as the name. And I think that's that came up in the research too, is one of the things that makes defining wetlands so difficult is regional terms mm -hmm. for wetlands, like certain terms only exist in certain areas, like a bayou mm -hmm. that's only used in the southern U.S. That just complicates the matter. Sure does. And, and as we talk about, these are like this habitat that we're in right now, like it's not really aquatic, it's not really terrestrial, it's kind of straddling the line. Mm -hmm. So it can be tough. I mean, that's Certainly. what wetlands do, but is it more terrestrial? Is it more you know, <laughs> aquatic? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to recommend a book for anyone who's interested in really getting into the nitty-gritty of this. When I was recently at the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage, I went on the Allenberg Bog Slug, and as we sat there eating lunch, the discussion turned to is it technically a bog or is it technically a fen? But, you know, I was telling folks about this book that I had that I really recommended for the subject, and I was pretty sure it was written by this rhyologist from Minnesota named Victor Crum, and he is a real sphagnum expert, and he wrote about all, like, the organic chemistry and all the different plants and regional differences. And I noticed that my friends Susan and Kaylee at the other end of the log we were sitting on were kind of snickering at me. <laughs> this um, is where we see where the fandoms, I guess, of, yes. of our podcast versus other franchises, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm mainly in the peatland fandom. So, <laughs> yes, this book was written by Howard Crumb, not, not the Quidditch player. Um, <laughs> Quidditch is a Harry Potter uh, yeah. reference. Yeah. So did you have yeah. to have them explain who Victor Crumb was, or did you know? No, I knew. Okay, I knew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. He gave up a, a promising career in Quidditch to, uh -huh. <laughs> to write a book about Pete. Yeah. But going back to Randall's fly for a moment, in the 1870s, when Burgess was collecting for his floor of Chautauqua County, he did collect plants here that we don't find anymore and are more specialized to like a mature peatland, hmm. including some some orchids that you just can't find in the region anymore at all. Uh, pitcher plants, which we don't find here anymore either, but you do find a lot of at Allenberg. A couple of rare willows, things like that. <laughs> and at the other end of this peatland, there is a road embankment that was constructed across what would have historically been the outflow of this peatland. Oh. So what that tells us is probably when that was constructed, maybe over a hundred years ago, it raised the water table here. Uh, and so that would have completely changed the hydrology of this wetland and probably what happened was you know mature woody vegetation would have been flooded killed off and the sphagnum would have really increased in productivity due to all of that extra sunlight and extra moisture so you would have gotten this very homogenized fen mat that kind of swamped out a lot of that more diverse vegetation so right now out on kind of the more open expanses of fen mat here, for example, this blue flag iris colony, it's huge and it's kind of homogenous. And over in the other section, we get these large, large patches where it's just sphagnum and sundew, or large patches where it's just sphagnum and bog club moss, which is like, it looks like bright green pipe cleaners going everywhere. <laughs> and the individual species of sphagnum form 
kind of really distinctive patches. So you've got these blood red patches, you've got these bright green patches, you've got yellow patches, brown patches, and it's very colorful, it's very visually distinctive, but it's a bit simplified probably compared to the flora that was here maybe 150 years ago. And that's an important thing to note is hydrology changes in peatlands can dramatically change the, I guess, the nature of them in ways that now, when we're talking about carbon, is very, very relevant. Right. All of that change, in this case, due to the nature of this particular peatland, probably resulted in a big accumulation after a brief release of carbon. <laughs> there would have been an increase in the rate of decay, followed by a big increase in the rate of peat accumulation. But recently, I helped someone get into a historic fen that no one had looked at in a while in central New York. And what we found was that uh, recent highway construction nearby, you know, sometime <laughs> in the last few decades, had changed the hydrology of the fen and also got it really, really invaded by Phragmites. And when we got out to the, the old marl bed in the middle of the fen that had historically had all these rare plants, it was flooded. It was under like maybe three wow. feet of water wow. that was higher than it would have been historically. And so you walk into that, every time you put your foot into the mucky stuff at the bottom that is the decomposing peat mat that can no longer accumulate peat, you get this rush of hydrogen sulfide gas. Oh. It smells like rotten eggs, it smells mm -hmm. terrible. And so you know that anaerobic decomposition that's happening and breaking down that peat mat, but it's also emitting a great amount of methane, <laughs> which obviously is a pretty potent greenhouse gas. Right, right. So right. we want to avoid these kinds of hydrological changes to our peatlands, especially given the role that they play in storing and sequestering carbon. And I, one thing that was, was going through my head listening to you, because you, you've given us so much to kind of take in here, and forgive me if you've already answered this question, but for me walking out onto this mat right now, mm -hmm. based on you know what I've learned, what I've been taught, I would say, oh, this is a bog. And you're saying, no, this is, this is a fen. So what tipped you off that this is not a bog habitat, this is a fen habitat? So how did you determine that, I guess, is my question. The main thing that tipped me off that this is a poor fen and not even on that acidic the side of it as opposed to a bog is the plant community. Okay. So because you had mentioned like the cinnamon fern mm -hmm. it wouldn't be tolerant of it. And that and, was going to be my follow-up question mm -hmm. is, is trying to make these determinations for much more of a layman like myself or a lot of our listeners. Are there plants that you can look for as indicators of oh well wait I don't see this so it's probably not a bog it's more of a fen or vice versa. Absolutely. So I know I mentioned this book and I forgot to mention the title. It's just titled A Focus on Peatlands and Peat Mosses by Howard, not Victor, Crumb. <laughs> um, so that's a great one that gets really into the details on a lot of them that you'd associate with Northern North America. But if you say go to, for example, we're in New York, we have the New York Flora Atlas website. You can look up any species of plant that lives in the state and it will give you a wetland indicator status. And so that's very general. That's just would you find it in a wetland or would you find it in a dry land or would you find it maybe in both? So those are worth understanding those wetland indicator statuses, but it will also often have notes on the habitat preferences. So for any given species of plant, it may be a generalist or it may occur in kind of more specialized habitats, fen, bog, poor fen, whatever. And 
In this case, like I said, we're talking about these irises, the cinnamon fern, the uh, skunk cabbage. You're not gonna find those in a true bog. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna find such a diversity of tree seedlings mm -hmm. and tree saplings. Yeah, a lot of red maple popping up. Yeah. Yeah, sure. so you might get some red maple, but only as small seedlings. But if you have trees in a proper bog, they're going to be, say, spruce. Evergreens. Maybe a little bit of white pine. Yeah, generally evergreens. Um, you'll often have this low cover of shrubs that are called leather leaf. And they tend to hold on to their leaves all winter. And typically you wouldn't find leather leaf in a fen. So you will find leather leaf in a fen. Okay. Too. Yeah, so that's, that's, yeah, it's tough because most of the plants that you can find growing in a true bog, you can also find in more acidic or intermediate fence. Okay. There aren't too many that are like strictly bog mm -hmm. um, associated, whereas there are many, many, many plants that if you do find them there, you know that's not a true bog because they're not going to tolerate that extreme side of the spectrum. What about pitcher plants? So pitcher plants actually prefer a slightly richer fen. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, many of our carnivorous plants, I know when I was first hearing about those, it was said that because they grew in these very acidic environments, yeah. they were nutrient poor. But it's not the acidity, it's the phosphorus limitation. And phosphorus limitation can actually be stronger in these alkaline fens than in the acidic fens. Okay. And what does that mean for the lay listener? They're just not available, right? Yeah, yeah, basically they, they can't get enough phosphorus, yeah. so they digest bugs because bugs have phosphorus. <laughs> yeah. All right. So what's the, let's bring it back kind of to the timeline for this particular property. Sure. So we're here, folks, in June of 2023, and you mm -hmm. said that the process for hopefully acquiring this property goes to the end of this year, right? Yeah, I mean... The idea is to close by the end of the year. Right. So we're going to be raising funds. A lot of the funds that we raise are for not only purchasing the property and the transaction costs, but also stewardship going into the future. Right. So as long as we are close enough by the end of the year, we're going to be in that closing process. But we still need to raise the full amount by the end of the year, ideally, to make sure that everything that's here that's so valuable ecologically has the future that it should. And would this property then, I don't know if you've determined this yet, would this be open to the public? Yes, this would be open to the public. Like I said, it's almost touching the College Lodge, which is also open to the public. And so we've got all these logging trails on this property, it makes it easy to put together a little trail system. There's some great spots where you can view the fen mat from the eventual trail system without having to come out onto it and inadvertently becoming a bog person. Um, <laughs> or a fen person. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But, but I, th I think it's, it's such a nice thing that it's so close to the College Lodge because it's almost as if if you purchase this land and protect it, it adds value to the College Lodge because connectivity between protected lands is so important. And that leads us right into the Western New York Land Conservancy's larger project, <laughs> the Western New York Wildway, mm -hmm. right? Yes, which I think we did talk about a little bit on the last episode too, but yeah, we've kind of further developed that concept now and we've got a really nice map of what we consider core areas and connectors because the Wildway concept is about creating a network of protected lands where wildlife of all kinds will continue to be able to move through the landscape in response to changing conditions in the future because things are going to change one way or another and, and things need to move yeah if if our our nature as we want to simplify it down to is stuck in one place it's not in a good position right 
So we don't want to maintain have, this connectivity. We don't want to have just islands of habitat. Mm -hmm. We want mm -hmm. connections between them. And folks, I'd recommend you check out the Wildlands Network, which looks at continent-wide connectivity. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you guys are doing that kind of work at a local level, which is a beautiful thing. Yep, and yeah. the Wildlands Network has been kind of the... They've provided a lot of the information and the basis from which we've developed this concept. Right, and that's what their goal is, is to mm -hmm. empower local organizations to find those connections in their local ecosystems and habitats. So, Absolutely. Awesome work. Anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? A last note on the connectivity point is that, you know, this property is like kind of long and skinny in parts. It goes east to west a lot more than it goes north to south. And on the west end, there is the College Lodge that it kind of connects to. And on the east end, it connects to this vast complex of wetlands surrounding the west end of Bear Lake. And that includes all kinds of shrub swamp, fen, rich hemlock hardwood peat swamp habitats, marshes, and of course the lake itself. So that's a really critical piece of habitat. It's amazingly undeveloped for a, a lake in this region. And we're really hoping that in the future we can continue to find ways to increase protections around that, increase connections between, say, the College Lodge and the lake, and the Chautauqua Watershed Conservancy, which is another local land trust, recently acquired a property about 17 acres right on the lake that's almost touching this oh. property. So we're, we're on it. We're in process. We're, yeah. we're trying to make this happen. We could have a really sizable complex of protected land here. That's, that's beautiful. In the future. Yeah. Well, I wish you guys the best of luck, and hopefully some of our listeners are able to spread the word or make a contribution themselves. Yeah. So. Yeah. We certainly appreciate everything. Well, Eric, thank you so much for taking us down here, giving up a, a Saturday morning, and uh, showing us around the fen. Yeah, thank yeah. you. It was beautiful. Thanks for coming, and I hope you're enjoying the, the cooling effect of that water around your feet. <laughs> uh -huh. Feels sure good. Am. And that leads right into the first thing we're going to wrap up with. We want to thank Gumleaf Boots for their support. Steve yeah. and I are both wearing... I was going to say, and I do think a miracle has happened today, because uh, <laughs> when's the last time I remembered to bring my, my boots out on a, a wetland hike? Never. <laughs> Never, yeah. <laughs> I think it's been at least a couple of years. I just, for some, I use them in other cases, but for podcasts, I never think to bring them. I'm like, I'm like, all right, I got the boom mic. I got this. I got that. Never my boots. Steve I don't know. always brings the worst footwear. <laughs> <laughs> but as we mentioned in previous episodes, we encourage you to check out Gumleaf Boots. We can't recommend them enough. They've been a long supporter of the podcast. And if you are a patron of the show, you will get free shipping on their boots. So check out gumleafusa.com. And now I'm going to turn it over to Steve to thank our patrons. Yeah, so first and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you to our new patrons, Sophie S., Peter R., Sean M., Matt E., Kendra, and Jonathan K. Sure. It's not a Jonathan I do know, but I saw this email from him and it said, this podcast made me care about animals as much as I care about plants. I think that's like a downgrade in my opinion, but <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> also, whatever Bryozoans are. <laughs> so it looks like, you know, it's been a while since I've led an episode, but one of my episodes made it into his email. Yeah. Could I get an episode about Monotropa uniflora too? Seems like you already got a link. <laughs> oh, so. We could say done. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I we guess. Did, uh, we did do an episode on ghost pipe. So check mission it out. Accomplished. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So we also like to give a special shout out each month to our top patrons. So stick around uh, for the end of the episode to hear Bill's daughter, Violet, share that list. And remember, if you'd like to be part of the Field Guides and read our Patreon list in future episodes, email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com or shoot us a message on social media. And if you'd like to support the podcast, consider becoming a patron of our show at patreon.com. As a patron, 
you'll get access to special patrons-only versions of our episodes that include me sharing the episode notes. Because of support from our listeners, we've been able to keep the show free and make cooler episodes like our recent Insect Palooza. Or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal on our website. A big thank you to Angel L. and Kaylee C. for their generous donations since the last episode. Angel works at uh, my daughter's school. Oh, nice. And she somehow... Oh, she heard about us at the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage. She saw us in the brochure yeah and that letter to the podcast and she said oh i have no idea and she was willing to support us so thank you angel nice and to kaylee too and don't forget that we have field guides merch available through our website store at the fieldguidespodcast.com and also didn't i see someone post that you had written some article recently i did i wrote an article for the buffalo spree about mike radomsky who we've mentioned on the podcast before yeah who does outside chronicles oh nice yeah. okay so we should share a link to that if we haven't already oh have that's you? a good idea yeah yeah and guys, remember, if you can't financially support the podcast, you can help out by sharing it with friends and family and by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps spread the word, and it also allows us to reach a wider audience. So we'd also like to thank our newest iTunes reviewers, Sloth Travel Club. Mm-hmm. I like that. <laughs> so come enjoy our sporadic posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always email us ideas for episode topics, criticisms, or your stories of personal misadventures in fens, bogs, or any other wetland to thefieldguides at gmail.com. And folks, for those of you listening who were listening to the bird calls during this episode and wondering why we weren't talking about them, (laughs) we see you. (laughs) We hear you. We wanted to talk about them, but we wanted to give Eric his full due and didn't want to take too much time away from him. Yeah, Eric hates birds. (laughs) (laughs) Except the Canada warbler. Oh, so it's true, except for the Canada warbler. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So folks, remember to get those kids outside. Let them get muddy, dirty. Let them flip over rocks and logs. And for those of you without kids, make sure to get yourselves outside too. And we'll see you next time. And the morning warbler's better than the Canada. All right, see you guys next time. (laughs) Do you want to say anything to that before we hang hang it up? I think people know the truth. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you.